you have your Bibles, would you open up to James chapter 1? Uh, you're going to notice fairly quickly that uh, in my haste this week to get up to the Promised Land State Park where a lot of our people are camping, uh, and I was there until late last night, I'm heading back up there today, but I gave our secretary my sermon outline, and I made a, a mistake, I believe, so the, the second half of your outline was from last week, thought you might need a reminder. In reality, uh, we just had a little bit of a mix-up. So you're going to, if you're using this, fill out the front part, but on the back, just disregard that, and you're going to have to fill that in. But we are all very intelligent people. I don't think that's going to be a problem. So let me uh, begin this morning. You know, there's a church that uh, made unique use of 1 Corinthians 15:51 when they hung it on their nursery door. In case you haven't memorized this verse, here's what it says. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. (laughs) Friends, God's word is powerful, perhaps even on nursery doors when it's used out of context. Who knows what the Lord could do to his word, but his word is powerful. Last week, if you were here, then you remember that James showed us that we have been given birth through his word. And that we've been made alive by the power of God's word, by the power of the gospel. This is called theologically regeneration. Big word. All it means is new birth. And it's the first, or what James says, the first fruits of what God has created in his plan of redemption. So here's what James said, is that you and I who were in Christ, these Jewish believers that were scattered all around the world in James's day, we are the first fruits. We are what God is going to do systemically and globally all over creation. This regeneration, um, this first fruits, is possible because of Jesus Christ. We've got earthquakes. We've got famines. We've got droughts. All of these are the, cre- the groans of creation which is longing, now listen, which is longing for the day of redemption, the day when Christ will come back and remake all things. We're the first fruits of that, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And the tool of this redemptive activity, and this is what is going to undergird this message, it's what James began with last week, it's what we'll continue with in two weeks after we briefly break for baptism. The tool of this redemptive activity is the gospel message. Here's what Romans 10 says. Paul says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. So listen, friends, the redemption of God, the wakening up of any person into the glorious truths of Jesus Christ occurs by the power of the gospel message. But many of these Jewish believers that James is writing to were a lot like us. Now, I've been a pastor for 14 years. I've been only alive for 40 plus. But I'm, I'm weathered enough to know that not everybody in this sanctuary this morning lives by God's word. I've seen it too often. You may be here this morning and maybe this is part of your religiosity. Maybe coming to church is important to you, but you leave it at the door when you leave. 
James has the same exact problem. There's Jewish believers scattered all over the world that were not living by the very power that regenerated them. God's word. There was an abundance of sin in their hearts. Now, put yourself in this text. I have to. Believe me, this is a glaring mirror the entire week that I'm preparing for this. There was an abundance of sin in their hearts, and that sin was blocking the reception and the redemptive power of the Word of God. And so James, ever the pastor, he admonishes them. You know what? Don't be afraid of that word, admonishes. It means to correct for your godliness. So James admonishes them. He corrects them for godly intentions. And so we see in verse 19 that James gives an outline for the entire rest of his letter. He says, be quick to listen. That's all the way through chapter 2, verse 26. He says, be slow to speak, which is going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 18. It ends. And then slow to become angry, chapters 4 to the rest of the book. So James, in verse 19, gives an outline to his believer, to his readers about the rest of the book. And we get to dip into this outline this morning. Here's what his aim is, and this is what you must get this morning. Because the entire book of James, and many of you probably do not realize this, but the entire book of James has one goal in mind. It's that we, the believers in Jesus Christ, would become mature. Now, here's how we redefined maturity a few weeks ago. It means to become single-minded. This is what maturity in Scripture is. It's how it's defined. That that we wouldn't be double-minded, that we wouldn't speak and come to church and act one way and then walk out of here and act another way. That we wouldn't be Christians that believe and say that we believe in God and then a trial comes and we abandon our faith and complain and look for an idle substitute. This is what James is doing. He's bringing these double-minded people that we all are prone to being and he's maturing them. He's moving them towards one aim and it's maturity that they would have faith coupled with actions. That what they say they believe would be demonstrated every single day in the way they live. Friends, that's just that's what James is about. That's why he wrote the book. So everything we read in James must go through this grid that says, how is this moving me towards maturity? See, James knows that faith without works is dead and that works without uh, faith is unredemptive. You can do all the social working you want in the world. And if it leaves a heart dead in their sins, it's absolutely worthless in, in the scope of eternity. See, we want to be a community built out of people that know that God has the answer one way to to eternity through Jesus Christ. And we demonstrate it in the salt and the light and the power of compassion. That's what the gospel is meant to be. It's meant to be lived. So how do we grow into this maturity? How do we do this? James gives us four disciplines to develop as we learn to live by the word of God. Here we go. Number one, the discipline of listening, the discipline of listening. He says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. See, James is stressing the urgency 
of what he is about to say with a command. This is a command. He says, take note. Drive it into your mind. Think on this. Don't let it leave you. Don't walk out of here this morning and forget about it. Take note. Be quick to listen. You see, he's taught that God uses trials to test our faith. Remember that? I've been speaking on this for the whole series of James. God uses trials to test our faith. Here's what testing of our faith is. Testing of our faith is the trials prove whether or not our faith is genuine. That's what trials do. Trials, friends, do not make us mature. Trials, when we persevere through them and we don't grab the escape route and we don't shortcut what God is doing when we stay under the trial, it's then that trials can mature us. And when we wait on God to say, God is good, God loves me, when, when God has, is ready for me to come out of this trial, He will provide a way out for us, but we endure them. That's what creates maturity. So we need to desperately listen to God's Word because, listen, God's Word is what empowers us to be, in, to be persevering. See, we try to persevere in our own effort. We try to persevere because we know we're not supposed to quit. But it's the word of God that's living and active and is making in you and I a strength that comes from outside of us into us so that we can endure and mature. That's what James is teaching. So God is strengthening us by his word. But listen, you and I must learn to listen. The word quick here when he says everyone should be quick to listen And the Greek means to be prompt or ready. There is one way that the word is used by way of fleeting. But it means to be prompt and to be ready. It means to be anticipating that God is going to speak to me. I'm expecting it because God knows that I have no strength in me and my own self. So God's going to speak to me and he's going to use his word to do it. And so I'm going to have my ears open and I'm going to be anticipating so that when he speaks, I can respond. We have a little saying in our family that says delayed obedience is disobedience. This is what it means to be prompt and ready, that when God speaks, we obey. A quick listener to God's truth is a ready listener for His voice. He's prepared to hear and he's prepared to receive what God says and to respond immediately. This is what James means when he uses his phrase, quick listener. Friends, let me ask you, are your ears ready to hear God's truth? I mean, interact with that for a minute. Are your ears ready to hear God's truth? Do you enter into your time during the week in God's presence through the word of God? Do you enter that time saying, God, I believe you're going to speak to me this morning. Teach me to listen. Can I ask you this? Did you come this morning? Did you come here this morning saying, you know what? Why go to church if I don't expect that God's going to speak? And so did you come here this morning anticipating, preparing your ears for the reception of God's voice to you in particular through his word? 
That's what Ecclesiastes says for us to do. He says, guard your steps, Solomon says. Guard your steps when you go to Cornerstone. Have you ever thought of it that way? Guard your steps when you get ready to come to church. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. So James is saying, be ready to listen because God's going to speak to you from his word. It's in that stillness of quietude that like Elijah experienced, that dark cave that we begin to hear the still, small voice of God. Now, friends, let me teach you something, if I can. Sometimes God will speak to us out of a storm. The tempest is raging all around you. Your life seems to be falling apart. Trial after trial comes, to, comes against you, whether it's your own children, whether it's your work, whether it's, it's your own health, but things just seem to assail you. God is going to speak sometimes out of a storm because you know what? Like Job who in chapter 32, I believe it was, became justified in his own self. He justified himself rather than God, who became righteous in his own eyes. That, that shuts down the ability to hear from God. So sometimes God has to speak out of a storm to get through our own justification, to get through our own righteousness. This is what he says in Job. After God thunders... To Job and corrects him, Job says, I am unworthy. How can I compare with you? I put my hand over my mouth. You see, Job's hand was anywhere but over his mouth. And so for chapter after chapter, as righteous as Job was, he wasn't perfect. He was in need of God. And chapter after chapter, he began to defend his own sinlessness, his own innocence, but not God's goodness. Friends, this is what we tend to do when trials come. If you and I want to mature, if we want to persevere through the testings of our faith, we must learn to listen to God's word. For he speaks to us for our own maturity with his living and active counsel. Listen to this from Timothy. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training and righteousness. Why? Here's missional theology. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But friends, if we haven't learned to listen, if we haven't learned the discipline of listening, then that word will not mature us. James goes on in another command. It's the second one. He, see, he teaches us the discipline of thoughtful speaking when he says, be slow to speak. Now, listen, have you ever seriously examined your speaking? Some of you are thinking, why on earth would we do that? Because what comes out of our mouths comes from our hearts. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is, is wise. He who holds his tongue is wise. Proverbs also says, do you see a man who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You see, when James taught this, when he said slow to speak to his Jewish audience, this would have resounded like a gong because the rabbis had been teaching this for years. All the Jewish believers would have been familiar with this. Here's what the rabbis taught. 
They taught that we have two ears in plain view, but only one tongue, and that tongue is hidden by a row of teeth. That's what the Jews, that's what the rabbis taught. And so the word speak here, when James says the word speak, slow to speak, he means to the speaking is when we talk at random rather than from reason. You see, what he's saying is when we speak before we think, be slower. Think before you speak. It comes from a word that describes talkative children in the Greek. It's speech that erupts without a filter of redemptive good in the face of circumstances that are difficult. You see, when we go through trials, the tendency for many is to pour out to God our complaints. It's to pour out to everybody our complaints. We want commiseration. When we're going through difficult times, we tend to become difficult people. Amen? I guess nobody agreed. (laughs) You know, I did a funeral this last week. It's one of my famous rabbit trails. I did a funeral this last week, and um, I really enjoyed the the opportunity to present the gospel. The the audience were, were largely Lutherans and Catholics. God bless them. But I said amen to them, and they all looked at me like I was some sort of freak. And I tried to tell them our church does it, but I I guess I was a liar. Amen. Amen. There you go. Here's what the word of God says. When the Egyptians were pursuing the Israelites with murderous intent, Moses told them, quote, the Lord will fight for you. You need only what? Be still. In the face of profound injustice, David instructed God's people to be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. The sons of Korah, they were worship directors. They were worship writers. And they taught God's troubled, trial-laden people to be still and know that I am God. See, being still recognizes and affirms that we are in need of his counsel. We are in need of what the word of God brings to us. That's why Ecclesiastes goes on in that chapter 5. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. In other words, don't come into God's presence thoughtlessly and just pour out your commiserations. God is in heaven. He knows. God is in heaven. He's in control. God is in heaven. His feet are on this world in sovereign lordship. God is in heaven. He knows what we're going through. You don't have to remind him. Go there to listen rather than to inform. And so let your words be few, Solomon says. See, there's a reason that you and I need to learn to be slow to speak because there's a connection between our trials and our speech. Look at this picture up here. Friends, this is exactly what trials do. They squeeze our hearts. And what comes out of our hearts comes oftentimes through our mouths. And so when we examine our speaking thoughtfully, we're really taking a deeper look into our hearts. Here's what Jesus says. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For listen... For out of the overflow of his heart, the mouth speaks. 
So friends, if you've got somebody that seems to be constantly critical, they don't have a speech problem. They have a heart problem. And God's squeezing through trials on that person's life is intended to disgorge that so that they can see it and begin confessing it. That's why trials are not to be abhorred. Trials are not to be run from because God uses them redemptively in our lives. There's another discipline, the discipline of self-control. James gives another command, he says, and slow to become angry. See, the person that listens, and this is the part of your outline I don't believe is correct. The person that listens and considers what he says is not likely to be quick to be angry. Now, listen, the, the, the angry, though, the anger that James is talking about here, and you need to write this down. You need to understand that there's, there's different types of anger in the Bible. This type of anger is that quick, reactive, impulsive anger that's quick to argue and debate with people. It's the quick-tempered man that quickly loses control. But listen, I'm always asked this question. And I finally have got some good answers, I think, because they're from Thomas Brooks, an old Puritan pastor who's no longer alive. The guy was a genius. How do you discern between righteous anger and unrighteous anger? I mean, don't respond. Don't respond. But how many of you struggle with anger? It's one of the top three problems I see in counseling. So how do we differentiate between righteous and and unrighteous? I'm going to give you several ways to do that. I'm going to ask you to write them down there. You'll see them up on the screen. Number one, anger is sinful when it rises up against God. Friends, I'm going to tell you that current psychology, Christian pop psychology has fed you a lie that says it's okay to be angry at God. He's a big God and he can take it. I'm here to tell you redemptively and biblically, there is never a case in scripture where it's okay to be angry with God. Well, what about Jeremiah? What about Moses? What about Elijah? What about Ezekiel? All of these prophets that poured out their complaints to the Lord. Friends, redemptive complaining always ends with the confidence in God's goodness. Amen. Our anger is counterproductive. It is never okay to be angry angry with God. And even worse, you will never ever have to forgive God because He never does wrongdoing. If you hear that and you hear a preacher say that, please do yourself a favor and throw it out of your mind. The person that listens and considers what he says, the person that is thoughtful, that examines his anger, will realize it's never okay to rise up against God. Number two, anger is sinful when it disturbs our ability to reason and make right judgments. If you're not thinking redemptively, then anger is wrong. If it clouds your ability to discern and to make right choices, the anger is wrong. Anger is unrighteous when it leads to sinful words or actions. The evidence of your anger, whether it's righteous or unrighteous, is a fruit on the tree. If it results in sin, it's not righteous. It's not godly anger. Anger is ungodly when it is mistaken or without cause. How many parents here, like myself, have reacted thinking that we knew who the culprit was in our children and found out after we disciplined that we were wrong? 
See, anger that leads to the mistakenness or without cause is ungodly anger. The anger made us reflexively move before we thought through it. Anger is unrighteous when it is greater in measure than what the cause warrants. God, thank Jesus, will never punish more than the severity of the crime. Anger is unrighteous when it prevents or stops us from loving God or others. If you're angry and you're bitter and you can't take communion and you can't think of that person without the attachment of bitterness and that acidicness that comes with it, friends, that's not godly anger. Anger is unrighteous when it persists longer than its effectiveness. Men, we tend to do this. We tend to harbor And sometimes we know how to punish our spouses through weeks and weeks of anger, that silent, passive, brooding, simmering junk. And finally, anger is unrighteous when it is used as a means to a selfish end. If the goal of our anger is ourselves, our own glory, our own benefit, it was not of God. But there's a fourth discipline and the final discipline that we've got to learn as James moves us towards maturity. He says, verse 20, the second half, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. You see the anger that you and I just looked at. It's a barrier It's an obstruction to righteous living. See, God wants you and I to live righteously. Which is a life. Here's how you define righteous living. It's a living that meets with God's favor, blessing and approval. That's righteous living. If God approves of it, it's righteous. If God disproves of it, it's unrighteous. And unrighteous anger cannot create righteous living. So James says, therefore, get rid of it. You know, I really like this phrase in the Greek. It's used, it was used primarily as a a word to get rid of the old soiled garments that cannot be reworn and throw them away. See, James is saying, don't get rid of it and then try to polish it up, clean it up and put it back on. That's that's not even to be in your, your, your future life. Get rid of that evil, what's inside of you. Throw it away. Do not put it back on. I don't want it. See, James is making the point clear that in order for you and I to receive the word of God, friends, this is so important. In order for you and I to receive God's word, which can create in us righteous living, then we must prepare our hearts by stripping off the dirty Moral habits and behaviors that are so abundant and throw them away so that we will never put them on again. That's what James is saying. If you want God's word to mature you, you want to be single minded so there's no division between what you believe and how you live. Then what we need to do is get rid of the junk in our lives. That stuff that the squeezing of the trials is revealing is there. We'll make no progress spiritually until we do this. I cannot tell you in my own life included how many times people, myself included, have tried to dodge what James just said. 
I'm going to go around that point because I can't get rid of I don't want to get rid of that junk in my life. I'm not ready to do that. So I'm going to go around that point and try to progress spiritually. Friends, you won't get beyond it. He says, all moral filth, it's a term that was used for the wax in your ears that impairs your hearing. James says, get rid of, strip it out, don't bring it back, get rid of that wax that's in your ears because the Word of God can't get in there because you haven't stripped the the moral habits out of your life. It's a barrier, you can't hear, you can't receive, you can't listen to the Word of God. You can't hear the voice of God bringing you counsel that shapes you redemptively. It says, get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. See, James is describing in vivid terms the desirable quality, the, or rather the detestable quality of the sin in our lives and the extent of what was emerging from these hearts that were being squeezed. You know, every, New, every uh, summer when we go up to New York, I don't know why it always falls to me to do this, but my mother has this large home and these eaves are wasp nest attractors. And so in the heat of the summer, my job is, my mother hands me a wasp and hornet can and to go out and destroy the nest. You know what happens the minute you spray those things? They all come flying out of there and buzzing around. Friends, that's the term, that James, that's the, the, the imagery that James is drawing up here when he says the evil that is so prevalent. It means something's been aggravated in you and overflowing. You see, when trials were coming to these Christians, they were getting aggravated and w- what was coming out was overflowing from their mouths. God can't be good. Why is God tempting us? Why can't God take this from us? What good is it being a Christian? The people in the world live better than we do. All of this stuff was overflowing from these aggravated hearts, and it was what was living in the hearts of these believers. James says, get rid of it. Humble yourselves so the word of God can mature you. Accept his word humbly, which is better translated meekly. Because meekness means that you accept God's dealings with you as always good without resisting him or disputing him without the anger. So meekness is laying your heart at the throne in trustful submission that says, God, have your way with me. The word meek doesn't imply weakness. It doesn't imply spinelessness. It's strength that lays itself down voluntarily in trust. See, James is encouraging us as he points out that there's something else in our heart besides remaining sin. The Word of God's been planted deeply in you. Friends, if you are a believer this morning, the moment of your salvation came about from the power of the Word of God, and the moment that you were saved, the Word of God planted in you, and seeds are planted in the soil of your hearts, and it's going to reap a harvest of righteousness. The Word of God's job is to till the soil. The Word of God's job is to water the soil. The Word of God's job is to bring the sunlight to bear so that things grow that please God. He says, confess the sins, strip them off like dirty clothes and humble yourself and accept that God wants to speak to you. Get rid of it so that you can hear. That's what it means that it, 
which can save you, not bring you to salvation. What it does is it cultivates a harvest of righteousness. It helps us persevere so that our faith is proven genuine in these trials. This is what saving faith is like. Saving faith always endures to the end. And the word of God's job is to endure us through trials to the end. Let me close with this. We've gotten some disciplines this morning that we need to live by in order to mature through trials. We have four of them. And those four were that the, the discipline of listening, the discipline of coming into God's presence daily with the word of God lifted high in our hearts saying, God, I believe that you're going to speak to me, giving me the bread that I need to make it through today to honor you. The second discipline that James teaches us is thoughtful speaking. I'm not going to let anything come out of my mouth without looking at it and examining examining it and seeing where did that come from. Because if I'm edifying you and if I'm building you up and if I'm encouraging you and if I'm exhorting you towards godliness, then what's coming out of my heart is the good that's been firmly planted in me. But if I'm bringing out of my mouth your judgment and your critical na- my critical nature, and if I'm spewing anger and complaints, then what's coming out of my heart is the moral filth that I haven't yet gotten rid of. And James is saying, get rid of it so you can hear the word of God so that he can produce in you righteousness. We've been learning about the discipline of self-control, your anger. David Paulson says 95% of our anger is unrighteous. I don't, I don't think he meant that literally, but I think he's probably pretty close. Very rarely is our anger godly. And finally, the discipline of a righteous life. It's a response to what the Word of God is doing in us. We want to please God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your Word. And Lord, I would confess on behalf of my brothers and sisters here that we have not highly enough esteemed your word. And Lord, like James and his audience, there's a good chance that some, if not many among us, Lord, are not living by your word. Lord, let us learn to listen. Let us learn to discern what's coming out of our hearts through our mouths. Lord, teach us these disciplines. Lord, I pray that we would learn self-control, that anger would not control us. We'd learn where anger is coming from and deal with it and get rid of it. Father, that we would strip off the filth and the habits and the things that do not please you out of our lives and not bring them back on after they've been washed. Let us not confess sins and then redress in them. Lord, I pray that we would hear your word, that it would produce a harvest of righteousness. And create in us a redemptive community that is built on the word of God that goes out to the people in the world to save them. In Jesus' name, amen.